Hey, and welcome to episode 35 of 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm joined by Charlie Osborne, founder and CEO of Merlin Guides, an employee training assistant that helps users navigate software through custom tutorials. Charlie's an old friend from my days in New York and an entrepreneur I've been following for some time now via his Medium blog, where he publishes his journey. It was great to catch up with him to learn about Merlin and how it plans to help reduce friction on new hire onboarding. It's such an interesting space that is in desperate need of innovation, and I'm so excited for you all to take a listen. Telling us about Merlin Guides and what the idea is. Sure, yeah. So uh, Merlin Guides, uh, you can kind of view it as an employee training assistant. Um, so a lot of people, when they start at their jobs, often get given a process document or they do an onboarding day or an onboarding week. Um, but normally a few weeks later, when you actually need that information, you've forgotten it, you can't find the process document, you find the process document was written two years ago, and all of that information is out of date. So with Merlin, instead, we wanted to teach people how to do their job inside of the software. So we create these interactive step-by-step uh, -step guides in the software. And because we're a browser extension, we're able to work on top of any piece of software, whether you use Salesforce or uh, Basecamp or Gmail or any other sort of piece of software. We can create these interactive guides on top of it uh, without needing an engineer or anything like that. Great. And so where was the opportunity that you saw? How did you come across this idea? Yeah, so um, I worked at Google before this and a uh, range of different roles and I realized that I would often start and there would be a manager um, in, the, in a new role that I started and that person was in charge of trying to teach me and they would often push me over to somebody else who would try and be my mentor. That person wasn't always around and it really struck me when I moved over from the UK to the US. Uh, I was trying to put in vacation time um, into, into the vacation tool, but it was a different tool than we used in the UK. And I could not figure out how to put in vacation. So I ended up asking the person next to me who'd been at the company for two days. And this is, I've been in the company for five years. So I ended up learning from somebody who'd just been through some, some sort of, as they call it, nuclear training at the time, how to put in vacation time. And I realized then that it's crazy that there's so much information in organization about how to do things and how to do things correctly. And the only real way to do it is through like interpersonal skills. Uh, and so on that basis, I sort of spoke with the training team and realized that there's complicated tools that they use that they hate using and no, they don't want to share access to because they take weeks of learning. And I realized then that training was an issue in companies and something that when, you know, if and when I left uh, Google was something I wanted to solve. I mean, from that story, I, what I hear is also that you didn't take a vacation for five years. So that's <laughs> when you first realized... Uh, no, but I actually, I totally agree. I think the reason why I hate the ramp up process at a new job is that I feel like I'm not good at my job and I'm just learning how to use Zendesk or how to use Salesforce. Um, and it'd be great if I could have someone over my shoulder just telling me what to do without feeling like you're bothering people. Yeah, exactly. That's the way we kind of view it is in our, the, the two premises that we run off are in an ideal world. Uh, someone who's learning how to do something would have the experts standing behind them, teaching them step by step, pointing out what they should be doing. Uh, on the other side, though, a trainer ideally doesn't want to have to teach everybody and be sat behind everybody every five seconds. So in an ideal world, a trainer would just teach one person uh, how to do it. And that person would teach the next person and teach the next person. Mm. Um, so we kind of view Merlin as that middleware where Merlin acts as the expert that's been taught by the trainer. And then that Merlin is then able to teach any trainee the exact way that it should be done. 
And so how does Merlin then plan to stay on top of, say, software updates or product changes from these external parties? I imagine yeah. like, that's going to be a pain point if Salesforce overhauled their what it was, lightning experience lightning, and no yeah. one wanted to use it. So we're using the old CRM, but, you know, say I did want to use lightning and all the, you know, the UI is totally different. Yeah, no, great question. So uh, obviously now we've moved to more cloud-based software. And so software changes are, are regular. Uh, one of the, the best examples I like is uh, Gmail. The compose button in that top left-hand corner looks like it's been the same for like two years. Um, but Google pushes a new version of Gmail out every four hours. And every time they do that, when you refresh the page, you'll actually notice the different attributes of that compose button change. So for us to make sure that we find that compose button and we don't find like an email with the subject line compose or an ad on the right-hand side for compose is surprisingly tough. So we really, so we've been around for for 12 months now and probably about nine months of that has been spent purely on that algorithm to detect slight page changes that happen. Um, so we're able to work with, you know, when Salesforce makes a, a slight change, you know, moves a button from the left-hand side to the right or, you know, Gmail changes uh, here and there, we're able to detect that uh, and we're able to automatically fix the guide with the algorithm that we've built. Uh, if, for instance, we're not able to solve that, we actually uh, take a screenshot of what the what the element was before, and actually ask the user if they're able to find that. If they're if they're able to find that, we actually then update that guide uh, and then push push those changes through. And then next time, if they make a change again, we've got two elements that we think it used to look like, and mm -hmm. we're able to sort of solve uh, for that. So we're able to work with like slight changes, like Gmail. Every time Gmail makes mm -hmm. a change, we're able to work with that. But you couldn't go from a like if you were creating a guide for Gmail, it wouldn't work inside of Inbox. And the same with Salesforce. The old Salesforce to the new Salesforce would require new new guides. Um, but we always we always ask users how useful a guide was. And once scores go below uh, sort of three stars out of five, uh, we actually inform the person that created the guide that there may be something wrong uh, once enough oh, uh, those that. come through as well. So there's always that propensity to re-record the guide. Uh, and we try and make that as easy as possible. But we're trying to make sure they, we ideally in a perfect world, they create a guide once and they'll never need to create it yeah. again. I love your product already because it sounds so <laughs> what I imagine the British are like. Like we don't want to bother people. So Merlin's going to bother people for you. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Ex exactly. Exactly that. I don't want to be a bother, so... We don't like to talk you. to other people, so if there's any way to stop the software's that... software's been updated. Can you just tell the other person to fix it, please? Yeah, um. it's interesting, because from, like, um, obviously you want to create a company that's both ethical and trying to make the world, the world a better place, especially when it comes to employees, but often those interpersonal, like, relationships that you create are actually very important. So we did wonder, um, when we first started using Merlin, whether it would stop people asking questions and as such you wouldn't build up those relationships as much. Um, but I think, and I think that will maybe potentially happen a little bit. Uh, I think people will still have those relationships outside of training and actually it's embarrassing. And I think one of the most, the most embarrassment comes when you ask the same person the same question. Oh yeah. Uh, and that I think happens a lot. Um, so I think actually you'll have a, you'll, you'll engage the other people more because you won't have to ask them embarrassing skill, sort of yeah. questions. And so you'll feel like they'll, you know, they'll still think you're intelligent. No, I think, I think this is where software really shines. It's that you're, you're moving the parts of interpersonal relationships that I really hate. I don't want to necessarily bother someone who's already told me this, you know, five years ago how to do PTO and then have to embarrassingly admit I have no idea how to do it. Yeah. Um, so we're right now in New York City, and so I know that you really be here now for, you've been here now five Four years. and a half, yeah, five years. Half years. Did you decide to stay and start a startup here just because you're already here, or what is the value you see in the, the New York startup scene? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so obviously London uh, startup scene is starting to get bigger. Uh, we now have Silicon uh, Roundabout as opposed to, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a real thing. Um, I mean, Silicon Alley here. 
um, is sort of the the way they express it. So you not heard that Silicon I've Roundabout? I've never heard of Silicon Roundabout. So in, in the London, best thing I've ever heard. Yeah, in London, there's an area called Old Street uh, next to Shoreditch, yeah, yeah, and Shoreditch. there's a round there's a large roundabout there, yeah. and that's that's where the tech hub sort of started. Yeah. Um, so really Google, hard to cross Google that street. It is actually yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, so yeah, so um, I so I definitely think London is is improving, um, but I don't think there's nothing quite like the American market, both uh, from a VC perspective. Um, but also at the same time, from a market perspective, uh, the UK obviously is, is quite a big market and, and, and very tech savvy market. But having 300 million people over here is much better than having 70 million people like in the in the UK. Um, so when I, I moved over here, I wasn't necessarily coming over here with the intent of starting a startup. I've always wanted to, to create a startup. Uh, but after I got my green card uh, like a year and a half ago, um, I, it made a lot of sense. Um, okay. It's a lot harder. It w- I was very much, it would be a lot harder to uh, to create a company, I think, without having that green card. So yeah. I was fortunate to have worked for a company that could help me with that. So was that the tipping point getting the green card or was it, were you working on it beforehand? Uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't working on, uh, on Merlin before I left, left Google, but, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd been building a number of other startups, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of ideas. I had this thing called startup pilots, uh, which is still available actually, I think on startuppilots.com, but people submitted ideas and I would build their ideas. And the idea was to create one every two weeks. Uh, so that was like a nice way for me to feel part of the startup community and sort of start, start that sort of thing going. Uh, I think there were two answers. One is like, I'd wanted to start a startup for, for, for a long time. And actually a, a friend of mine passed away. A few years back and after he did like I realized just how important it is to like go after your dreams and such so I knew I wanted to start it I actually considered moving back from the US mm-hmm. uh, to the UK to, to found a company because my green card hadn't come through uh, and the second reason was uh, at Google I happened to just have uh, a manager who somehow I, I fell out of favor with uh, in a very bad place and tried to get me he tried to get me fired basically uh, and the company Google uh, sided with him who'd been in the company for a year versus myself who'd been in the company at that point for eight years and I realized then that the company doesn't necessarily didn't necessarily care enough about me as I wanted a company to mm-hmm. uh, and so I knew that I needed to leave as sort of quickly as possible so under uh, about a year later after I got my green card uh, and I'd worked for another team I realized that that was the time to sort of sort of jump ship and uh, fully fully go in yeah well great I think that's a great experience though it's always something People always say those cliches, like, you know, when things seem like they're going down, but it's also, in retrospect, seems like probably a blessing in disguise. Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, I mean, I, that that person pushed me pushed me to, to, yeah. to, to, to realize that I was just uh, treading water. Yes. All right, well, let's switch gears and talk about you. So, you are from the UK? Correct. Are you from London? Uh, I always tell people I'm from London, because uh, it makes the conversation easier. Um, but no, I'm actually <laughs> from, a, from a small uh, village called Blankdown which is near a small town called Kidderminster. You've never heard of any of these, uh, which is near a bigger city called Birmingham, which oh. most people have the least have heard of Alabama, Birmingham, um, but it's obviously named after the UK, Birmingham. So from the Midlands, the middle of the UK okay, um, as well. But I went to a posh school, which meant that I got this pretentious accent that I hate. Um, I'm re- really, in my head, I have a very sort of Midlander accent, which is a, Kind of a slightly depressing accent, but uh, but it's. Can you do it for a, us? I can't. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try. It's gonna go badly. So um, does that mean you went to boarding school? I went to boarding school. Yeah. Okay. And so where was that? Is that really where you grew up then at boarding school? Uh, well, I went to boarding school at thirteen. Okay. So before then, I was I very much uh, sort of we were in the countryside, so very much small schools. Um, uh, solid belief in like we there was a school I went to called Winterfold and. 
one of the teams ended up injured. Two people got injured on the game, and we actually gave them one of our players um, so that we could continue the game. Like it was very much the do what sort of like let's you know good sportsmanship, good uh, good ethics sort of school. Um, and but so did you very give much them a different. Good player, or did you get them a bad uh, player? <laughs> we gave them actually. I I actually think it may have been me. I can't remember the story correctly, <laughs> but I remember playing. I mean, we were hundred percent. I played. If if it was me, I played as if I was working for that team. So okay. it was definitely it was definitely like a you know it was about the game, not about you know the. Maybe you just scored on your own team, and now you're saying you played for the other team. Maybe maybe <laughs> I have scored own goals before, so it wouldn't be the first time. So what did your parents do for a living? Great question. Yeah. So my, my mom, um, uh, is a teacher now. Okay. Um, she's done many jobs. She, uh, she's helped my dad out a lot with his business, um, for a lot of the time, but she's been, she's been in education now for, I think about 15 years, uh, as a primary school teacher. Um, this is probably why my company does something teaching related. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then my dad, uh, my dad's been sort of an entrepreneur and a politician, um, oh, wow. for a long time. Okay. Yeah. So he, he sort of took over my, the business for my grandfather, uh, my grandfather uh, wasn't as good a businessman. Unfortunately, the company, when my dad took over, was in debt by three quarters of a million pounds. Oh, wow. My dad managed to turn it around enough as well to be able to give, um, like, me and my sisters, like, an education as mm-hmm. well. So they, uh, he did, he, amazing, uh, definitely very much the sort of the person I look up to most. Um, but he also is, loves politics. Uh, he, again, I think that's that instillment of how to help people out as much as possible, I think I definitely get that from him. Um, and he's been a, a counselor. He's he's probably one of the he's one of he's a he's a great politician in that he does what's right for uh, the people in his ward. And he's always in the press, like making changes, making things better. But uh, he doesn't necessarily play the system mm-hmm. as much as he necessarily had. Um, so I think he's he's the sort of politician that everybody wants, but not necessarily the one that sort of raises through the ranks as quickly as they should do. Oh man, I have so many ideas about that we should talk about after. <laughs> Un- unrelated notes, I want to keep it more on you. It is funny though that your company sounds like a perfect blend of your parents. Um, but did you, when you were growing up, did you think you wanted to be an entrepreneur, like looking at your dad's business? Or is that when you, you know, did you ever, like when did you first start thinking that you could really be an entrepreneur? Oh, that's like, yeah. I think I've always kind of wanted that at, um, at secondary school, which is, I guess, middle school over here. <laughs> um, that was, um, they, uh, I just created a newspaper, um, which I was selling to, to, to people. Like I managed to negotiate with the headmaster that uh, I could print for free this newspaper as well. So I, in essence, all the money came back. Um, I only ran for two, two, two issues. Um, and then I, at university, I tried to create a company, uh, as well. That was like an online student magazine, uh, similar sort of thing. I think part of that was also that, uh, I, I love Superman. Um, and so Superman obviously is a journalist by day and Superman by night. Um, so I love the idea of creating some sort of, uh, newspaper magazine based thing as well. And that's probably why I ended up in advertising as well and working in media in, 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 at Google, uh, for, for, for a while as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I always knew that I wanted to, my dad's very much sort of like a hero of mine. Um, I read Richard Branson stuff for a long time. I was, I was a big follower of his. Um, and so, yeah, I think. I always knew I was going to do it at some point. I didn't know exactly when. Um, and I'm very happy I finally made the made the leap a year yeah. ago. So Superman and your dad are two. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Superman the journalist. No, so it's, it's interesting because... Superman the man. Yeah, they um, they did... Uh, so I was part of an organization called the Startup Leadership Program, mm-hmm. um, which is... It's actually... It's an accelerator for founders. Uh, it's, run, it's, a, it's, a, it's run by alumni every year, so I help out actually now. Um, with the next sort of batch that's coming in. 
Um, and that part of the thing that you do when you when you go to that program is create your entrepreneurial journey. And you only have a minute to talk about it. Um, so yeah, there was a giant picture of my dad on one side and a giant picture of Superman on the other. And so you could very clearly see the influences through my life that those two had sort of affected me on. I love that. Um, so what did you do outside of school for fun growing up? Oh, that's terrible to answer because I just have very geeky answers. I used to play video <laughs> games far more than I should have done. Uh, I learned to code and just got very much into that. Um, I think I was really, I was very much into sports to begin with, um, sort of football or as you guys call it, soccer. Um, that wasn't an American accent. I just said it very weirdly. <laughs> um, but no, so the um, uh, I was very interested into that and then went to boarding school and I wasn't as good as the other players and I, I got an injury and ended up sort of like not sort of making any of the teams. Uh, and so from that, I sort of moved over to computers, I think. Um, but yeah, no, definitely from the ages of 13 uh, to sort of uh, to 18, like I was, video games was my life, which is sad to say. I, no, it's not. I, I find that video games kind of opened the door to most developers that I know at least. And it was more like they saw these video games and they wanted to learn how to make them. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm definitely envious. I was more of a builder with like an older brother of the connects and things like that. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, I still remember building Lego models with my mom as a kid. Like that was, that was, that was great. So, you know, you had a more traditional path. I mean, going from university then to Google. Um, what do you think, you know, did you always know you were going to go to college? Did you ever think you were going to do that entrepreneurship from a younger age? That's a good question. Yeah, I think, I don't think I ever considered not going to university or, or college. I'll, I'll keep translating <laughs> as we go. Um, but no, I, I think, I mean, that, I think that's, that was instilled from my parents um, from a young age. That that's sort of like the, the path that you go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I never, I never necessarily saw, I saw entrepreneurship as something that probably happened once you'd had a number of years in industry uh, and the way to get those years in industry was university. Yeah, I never, I don't think I considered for a second not going to university. Yeah. And so now that you're starting your own company and everyone talks about culture and tech and it's funny because I think people idealize Google and forget it's now an enormous conglomerate. Yeah. Um, so how do you, what are, do you take anything that you saw at Google that you liked when building a culture here or do you look at it totally differently because it's only a few people kind of starting things up from the beginning? That is, that is a really good question, and it works very nicely to what I was actually working on last night. Um, <laughs> so, so it works perfectly. You would think I'm, we plan this, but yeah. not. Uh, well, on the one hand, there's like culture, but I was uh, doing a lot of stuff uh, about branding recently okay. um, and thinking about what's our message, what's, what, what do we sort of say to our, to our users. And actually, I think Google has one of the best sort of consumer brands, yeah. and I like their approach. Uh, I mean, the best example I have is terms and conditions. Generally something that's very boring, all full of like legalese that you sort of scroll through and no one really reads. But if you read the Google terms and conditions, it's, you can tell the tone. There's sort of like a nice playfulness. Like, look, this is something we have to do. This is something we're going to talk through. But like, we're still going to say like, this is the important stuff. This is the non-important stuff. Like, it's very clear. Probably before I clicked. I mean, definitely. (laughs) Never agree to the iTunes stuff. Like, it's, it's all terrible. Um, But no, I mean, that, that messaging, that external messaging, I think is, is key. I really like Google's sort of 20% um, project sort of thing. I think it's very important to give people a lot of autonomy, and that generally comes out of that 20% sort of area as well. I think Google often preaches a lot of great stuff that doesn't necessarily happen internally, especially in sort of the sales and services orgs. 
Um, so I think a lot of what Google says externally and tries to push in internally is uh, 100% bang on. They're very inclusive. Uh, they're trying, well, they're trying as well to become more inclusive. Uh, they're always trying to push um, the envelope in, in a number of different areas. They're trying to do what's best for their employees. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of that that I, you, you know, you can take me out of Google, but you can't take the Google out of me. Um, it's very hard and I'm still a Google fanboy and I try very hard not to be. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, I think what Google's trying to do is 100% what they should be doing. I think it's just impossible to do it at the scale that Google is now. Yeah. Um, so I, I've taken a lot of that stuff in, um, but I'm, I'm also trying to think of my own culture and what I can do, which would be slightly different to them. So what do you think the most surprising thing has been so far about being a founder? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think the I, I, I have to say the most cliche things, which is that it's it's harder than you expect it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone said that. I was very much of the opinion that no, it's it's gonna be easy it's gonna be easier for me. Like I've got these tech skills, I've been talking to VCs for a long time, I've got Google on my resume, I've got a British accent in America, it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be real easy. Um, and I, I mean I mean that's just complete <laughs> ego. Uh, there, but I honestly thought that, especially compared to like friends who have come from you know backgrounds and are uh, you know of ethnicities that don't necessarily get as much of a look in, yeah. or female founders or or anything else like that, that they found it tough, and I thought I would find it um, significantly easier than them, uh, and I probably have, and there's definitely opportunities like this opportunity that that you know who knows, um, but I think, I think it's yeah, it's definitely been harder. Uh, I think that people often say like double the amount of time that it takes to do something. And I think that's a hundred percent, hundred percent true. Um, but I also think that you learn, I've learned more about myself in this year than I had like yeah. in probably the last like seven years beforehand. Yeah. What do you think the hardest thing is? Cause you, you write that blog or you were writing a blog about yeah. your experience and being up really upfront about it. And I remember I read a few of them. Um, and they were, a lot of them were about, you know, giving yourself deadlines to do things, which I really appreciated. I think, Perhaps that's why I called my podcast 52 Founders, that I had to do it week after week, even the weeks you I really like want to quit like when you're super busy. It's kind of the accountability factor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you find to be the hardest part? Uh, I think, well, accountability is an interesting one because you, you can always instill that. I think for me, it's almost the exact opposite, which is giving myself, I like to set um, like very aggressive goals, like things that... Google has this mentality actually of of their objectives, their KPIs. If you OKRs, if you get if you yeah. yeah if you get if you get to a hundred percent, you didn't set a good OKR. Um, it's sort of the belief, and I I I have that as well. So I always said like this needs to be done by Monday, but chances like it should like if I if I get it done by Monday, that's like, amazing. Um, but I think having those aggressive goals and then giving yourself permission to fail or to push those goals back, I think is tough. Um, I think it's very important with customers. To, I always double what I think it will take with customers. Um, the whole, uh, what is it, under-promise, over-deliver mm-hmm. um, sort of like aspect of that. Um, but internally, I find it very hard to not to set an aggressive goal. And then I'm always disappointed when I miss it. But I always set aggressive goals because I think that's the best way to, that's the best way to push yourself forward is to aim for like, I want this done by this this time. But yeah, I think permission to fail is something that I'm I'm currently struggling with, yeah. uh, especially now in, in this in this sort of a this studio where we're trying to I'm trying to get everything done as quickly as possible. Uh, I am finding it hard when I don't hit the ti- the sort of the timelines that I want. Yeah, I think that the it's OKRs seem to be 
almost evil in the sense that if you achieve them at 100%, you don't feel great. You're just yeah. like, I didn't even, I didn't set an aggressive enough goal. Seems like almost a lose-lose situation that if you hit that 70%, you feel like the best, but anything over or under, you're like, eh. Yeah, I think, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. I feel like it would almost be good to set two OKRs. One is the realistic one, and one is the one that you aim for. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you end up between those two, then you've done well. Yeah. Well, that's what most sales teams do, so you have, like, your... Yeah. Stretch Sorry, goals. Except then they're always like, oh, we hit our stretch goals again. I'm like, maybe make some super stretch yeah, goals. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned where we are at Expa. I meant to ask you about that before. So tell us about Expa and where we are sitting right now. Yeah, so Expa is a, a really great initiative uh, created by a, a number of people, including uh, one of the co-founders of Uber and um, and uh, Foursquare. But the, the notion of it was originally that they wanted to, to create some new new startups and bring some clever people together to try and push out some new ideas. And then a few years ago, they created Expo Labs, um, which is sort of an initiative underneath that, which allows founders to come in and uh, basically do the same sort of sort of aspect uh, using the same network, um, but also getting uh, a nice influx of sort of a pre-seed round of funding at the same time, and then some really great mentors. So it kind of acts like what I think a, a sort of an incubator should be in many ways. Um, but, uh, I think, I think they give you, there's a lot less so that for instance, in this, this sort of cohort, I think there's six of us, seven different or seven different companies rather, um, in this sort of, sort of space. So I think because of that, like there's so much more that they can give you and help you with, um, that you really, you are an incubator. You're not just, you know, somebody that they see once a week. Mm. Um, it's, it's very much like, how can we help? What can we do? And let's, let's work towards these goals with you. Yeah. I always like the idea of an incubator. Just because I think one of the things founders devalue is is basically having a network of other founders who are going through it. And obviously, I'm interested in psychology. That's what my podcast is all about. But I think people look about advice for how to build your company and look for mentors. But there's the difference between that and having relationships with people who are actually going through the same experience and sort of the vicissitudes of what comes with being a founder and... I think sometimes you just want to vent about, oh, well, this week is becoming really hard. Not necessarily how to fix it or how to get better, but just feel connected to other people that are going through it. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, was very, I was very fortunate before this program to be, as I said before, the Startup Leadership Program, um, which to me created that network. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of, those, some of the people that I went through that are best friends I talk to like, um, pretty much like 10 times a day um, about many different aspects. Um, and I think the nice thing about this program is we're also we're also pushing ourselves more than that. I think I think you almost need two types of uh, sort of uh, founders slash mentors. Like one is the people that are going through it that you can vent to, and then the other ones are the ones that like you can vent to, but are also like gonna call you up on it. Like, hey, no, like you need to be doing this, or giving you that sort of like insight that like, oh no, you can push yourself this, or giving you that advice. I think you almost need both of those. Yes, definitely in your life. All right, so let's switch to the fun final question round. Uh, fun question. What's other New York startup that you really love? That's a great question. Um, It'd be great if I sent you these beforehand. It would have been great <laughs> if you'd sent me these beforehand. I guess so. What probably is a company called uh, Plush, Plush, or Vsh, um, but it's it's a sort of a, a personal shopping assistant for plus size women. Oh. Um, and it's really, it's one of those ideas where it just makes complete sense, especially in the States. Uh, but at the same, and, and the, the founder, uh, Shashi, she's just, she's amazing. She's very positive. She's always helpful and always, uh, she's been a, a great resource for me. Um, and at the same time, she's 
had so many no's from the VC world as well mm. that she keeps pushing herself through. Uh, and the, the product just makes so much sense that it, it confuses me as to how it, it isn't one of the largest companies that I've heard of yet. Like it's, it has 3000 people on its mailing list um, that basically join like every week or something like it's, they just need money. Um, so if you're a VC listening, invest in this company, 100%. Great. No, I love that. That's a really great answer. So I'll just end with, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? I almost want to give three different answers to this. You can uh, So you I'll, I'll think. So uh, from a from a personal standpoint, uh, Richard Branson is one hundred percent high up on uh, on my list of people I'd like to meet. Um, he's actually an LP here, so I'm hoping one day I'll meet him. Um, Talk about your newspaper business. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> I love that. That's true. I guess yeah, because he. Um, I think he started out with a student yeah. magazine as well. Um, so we've got that in common, Richard. If you're listening, give me a call. Uh, and then. Uh, another one would be, um, there's a, there's a uh, t- tool called GrooveHQ, which is an amazing, uh, it's a ticketing system, um, but the founder put a blog out and basically uh, every, every week pretty much releases their metrics and details and how they've solved problems. Wow. I think he would be really interesting because I just think he's been through a lot and understanding his, his users and he thinks a lot about it. I think his blogging, and which is something that I try and do as well, is like a good therapeutic thing, but also at the same time it helps you crystallize your thoughts. Um, so I think he would he would have very clear, uh, I would just like advice uh, from him um, about it. And then the third one would actually probably be the the president, who is technically an entrepreneur, even if you view it as a million dollar um, sort of loan uh, to get started. Uh, and I think just because I would like to see if I would focus on trying to change his mind on a few different aspects. And I think there's a chance that maybe I could do it. That is the best answer I've probably ever heard. <laughs> Very ambitious. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you for having me. All right, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for episode 36.